Well, thank you all for coming out. I am from Eastern Kentucky, but I was born. I was born right here in Davis County. I was at, at uh, Davis County Hospital. My mom is from out on 81. She is a former Liebold. And so I lived two years on Parish Court. And then my dad, who is from the mountains, decided that it, we'd been here long enough. And we moved back to Eastern Kentucky, to Longs Creek, which uh, officially is in the middle of nowhere, isn't it, Leslie? This is my wife, Leslie, and she's from Louisville. And the first time I took her back to the mountains, she didn't tell me this, but the whole time she was back there, she had two things on her mind. She said, she was thinking, what in the world am I going to do if he gets mad at me and puts me out of the car? <laughs> and what do they do when they get hurt back here? And so it is a very... Uh, isolated place for the most part um, and it uh, it has a, a history of people telling stories my family I grew up listening to my dad and my grandmother tell ghost stories and I just absolutely loved them I could not wait till bedtime and I beg them every night to tell me a story and we grew up on on a few a few uh, uh, main stories one of them was called the big toe and i don't know if you all have any of y'all ever heard the big toe out here see nobody well back home everybody literally everybody has a big toe story and there's another one called raw head and bloody bones and it's a rough one and there's the golden arm and so we just had all kind of of odd things but what i want to do is i'm going to start you out telling you about my book i wrote a book called uh, Appalachian Ghost Stories, Tales from Bloody Breathed. And I wrote 16, uh, just their original ghost stories. I used the big toe and I used uh, sort of the golden arm, but for the most part, I made these up based on the people I knew, based on our local lore, folklore, our history, uh, just stories I had heard there on that creek. And one of them, this very first one, see that little boy in that barn? Can you all see him? We had, that's the barn, that's a picture of our barn that was at the head of our holler. It was about a half a mile back up in the, way up in the holler. Not even a road to it. You had to get in the creek most of the way. And we heard, my dad always told me that sometime back in the 20s or 30s, a little boy fell out of it and got killed. So... I never knew what his name was, nobody else could remember, so I just called him that boy of Mort's. Because somebody would say, if they didn't know their name, they'd say, well, it's that boy of Junior's, or that boy of Sarah's, or something like that. So I called him that boy of Mort's. And I used my little granny, she was big, and there's, there's my Aunt Joey in the back right there. So I am from here, aren't I? I was born here, wasn't I, Joey? Yes, I was. Uh, I used my aunt, or my, my aunt, I used my grandmother, uh, little granny, as one of the characters in this. And I can remember you all when I was about seven. Little granny, she stood about that tall, and she had her little hair up in a little bun all the time, and she wore a, 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 a gray dress down to her ankles, never saw her in anything else, and little black granny boots. And she was mean as a copperhead. I was scared to death of her. She chewed tobacco. And so she was one of the main characters in this story. And when she died, they laid her out in the front room of her house. 
in a coffin, and the women sat up all night with him, and they draped black lace all around her coffin. And that scared me to death. I wouldn't go about it. I wouldn't go in the room. And I, I just didn't, I didn't know what in the world was going on. But it just, I never forgot that. And so that was a big part of this story. Then another one is called the Jimbo House. And up way up this holler where we lived, there was a three-story house, if you can believe it, a big house built back in the 20s by a man named Jimbo Deaton. And there was, literally there was no road to it. You, it. When he built it, you had mules and wagons. When I lived there in the 60s and 70s, there was, people would still try to go up in there, and they'd go in a car, and they'd drive right in the creek. Well, Jimbo killed himself along about 1950 on a great big rock uh, about 100 yards from that house. And in the, seven, in the late 60s and early 70s, when I lived at the mouth of the holler, there were some children that lived in that house, and we'd ride the bus with them. And every day they'd tell us, well, last night, we heard up on the third floor, we could hear a wheelchair rolling around. And they'd say, and you can hear change rattling up there. And I saw this. They said right behind their, about right out their back door, was a lump of dirt about the size of a football. And they swore to me that every time it rained, blood just poured out of that, and that Jimbo's head was buried under that, beneath that lump of dirt. And so one time my sister and I decided, well, we had to see all this for ourselves. And I was about eight, and she was probably nine. So we slipped off up that holler without telling anybody. And we went a good three quarters of a mile right by ourselves up in there. And we got up, I got up there, and, and Patty Sue and, and, uh, and Naomi were right there waiting on us. And they took us in their door, and I'd never been in there, and they had a dirt floor. It was absolutely a dirt floor. They didn't have electricity run to it. And in the floor, in the ceiling of the second floor was a door. They did, you know, I don't know if any of you all have ever seen that in an old house, but it, they didn't have the door up way. It was laying flat, and she pushed it up, against the wall and we scurried up there told us there was some kittens up there so we went up there and we had no sooner set foot on that second floor than she slammed that door down and there was a rope in it that had a knot on each end and she was holding down on the heart or the every bit of her weight with that knot on the other end and there we were and we turned around and I swear to God there was a wheelchair right behind us and we didn't know what to do and it felt like we were there for an hour but probably wasn't 30 seconds and then all of a sudden the door just kind of eased open and Effie their mother stuck her head up in there and she didn't have bless her heart she just looked a sight and scared us about she scared us about as bad as anything <laughs> and we jumped down out of there and ran all the way home and you know so things like that will stick with you so that was another story I wrote and then probably my favorite uh, story behind any one of these stories that I wrote is called the night walker and my grandmother, uh, Mamma Sophie, she was probably in her 30s, something like that, along about 19, late 1940s, early 50s. And she would tell this story. She said one night they were in this house up the Jackson Branch. And there was three women with her, all of her cousins. And they were there by themselves. And the men had all gone off somewhere. They'd gone off to take the tobacco to Winchester or something. I don't remember what it was. But she set up along about, and it was dead of winter, set up along about 10 o'clock, they heard somebody walk up on the porch outside and stand there. 
and they were too scared to get up and see if the door was locked. And they said before they could do anything, that doorknob started to turn. And they said the door eased open, and in stepped this man, an old man, and he was really dirty and raggedy looking. And he walked in. He didn't shut the door behind him. He walked in. And he never looked at any of them. He never said a word to any of them. And he walked right through the middle of them and back the hallway. And the kitchen had a curtain hanging over it. And he parted that curtain and walked into that kitchen and vanished. The door had a stick up against the door handle from the inside, so he could not have gone out and locked that back. And they searched that house over. They looked in that kitchen. They looked everywhere, and that old man flat out vanished. And my grandmother was not somebody to tell a story like that. And she swore that that happened. So I wrote a story called The Night Walker. Then there's one called Tom's Home, and this is a creepy one. We had an old storekeeper named Lige Stamper. And Lige's son, Junior, he, Lige told this for the absolute truth. He said that one night during World War II, and, Ly and Junior was over in, uh, he was over in the South Pacific. He said one night he was on a mule, and he was riding down this dirt road, and about maybe from here to that wall back there, uh, he could see a man standing out there in front of him. It was, it was dark, but there was a full moon. And he said he rode on up a little bit, and he could see that the man had on a a military uniform but the odd thing was was he was standing in a in a rut in the road that, that had water in it just a deep rut of water and he was in it about up to his knees and he said he got just about up on him and he said the fellow raised his hand just a little bit and then he just like if he had been made out of sand he just melted into that that mud hole and the next morning he got a telegram saying that that junior had been killed and he did he got killed oh uh, he died during the war and uh, Lige told that for the absolute truth about his own son so I wrote a story about that and combined it we had in Breathitt County we've got a lot of history there in addition to the feuds we killed each other a lot in the 17 in the 1800s in the early 1900s but during World War one we were the only county in the entire United States that did not have to draft a man to go to, go to World War I, to go fight in World War I. We had 409 men volunteer. And, I mean, think about that, folks. In Kentucky, there's 120 counties. There's time, you know, 49 other states, I guess, yeah, uh, then. So we didn't have anybody. We had, and, and a lot of people at that time, said that they thought it was probably safer over in France than it was in Breathitt County. And that's, that's likely true. We had the roughest, without a doubt, we had probably the roughest place to live in the uh, United States for about 50 years, maybe longer than that. And we have, I've got a, few, a film on KET called The Feuds of Bloody Breathitt, and they play it pretty regular so you can catch it. But it'll tell you about, uh, what happened, and how many of you have heard of the Hatfields and McCoys? Every last one of you. Well, they had 12 people killed in 12 years. We had 40 killed in the first 11 months of 1902 alone. 
and our feuds, we had four feuds, and they went on from 1870 to 1912. And so we were, without a doubt, uh, the biggest feud that Kentucky had. So that's why I did a film on it, all, just from being there. Another one, and this one my dad told me. This, this is an odd story. He said one night his Uncle Cash was riding up the creek, up Long's Creek, and he was going to a place called Freeman's Fork. And he was on his mule, and there was, where you went across the creek, uh, the little road went across the creek, and that was a ford, and they called it the Sweet Gum Ford. And there was a huge sweet gum on one side of it, and there was a huge sweet gum on the other side of it. And he said one night Cash was riding a mule up through there, and he, the, the mule stepped down in the water, and he said he heard a racket up in a tree, and it was fall, and the leaves were on that tree. And he said he heard a splash over behind him, and he's afraid to look. He's just a young, young late, probably 15-year-old boy. He said he's afraid to look back and see what it was. But he said out of the corner of his eye, he could see what looked like a man walking toward him, but it had the head of a mule. And it got right up to him, and it laid its head on his leg. And that mule, as it walked all the way across that creek, and as soon as it got to the other side of, the, of that creek, it jumped back up in that <laughs> I knew I was going to get you. So that was, an, that was another one that uh, there's just so many stories like that. I woke you up, didn't I? Some of you were asleep. So I thought I would write a book, uh, stories about those, just let those ghost stories and legends. Um, I'm going to read you one. How many of you here had a party line telephone ever? Probably not many of you here. Yeah, there's several of you. Well, we had a party line in Breathitt County where I lived until the 80s, believe it or not. And I can remember my little grandmother sitting on the phone up the, hall, up the hallway. Let's see if I can find it. There it is. I'm going to get up and leave my spot here. but I took a picture of, of my aunt. My aunt still lives there in that house, and so I got that old phone bench out, and I got the old phone back and put it on that, and I had her put a little nightgown on and sit there, and this is my picture that I had. So, you know, she's sitting there, you can tell what Everybody on the creek knew it when a neighbor got a phone call. The signals got crossed in that little box. Phone company hung on the pole just up the road, and all our phones give off a little short half ring. Now, that's the way it was on Freeman's Fork in 1959, because we were all on the same party line. 
Now, it weren't no big deal because we'd never known anything different. Matter of fact, we considered ourselves to be amongst the lucky. Our old black phone was alive day and night with people telling their business, all right there for everybody else to hear. And mommy was as bad as anybody to listen in. She'd sit up the hallway with the phone receiver pinned to her ear, her little hand cupped over the mouthpiece and taking in every word. That's how we'd find her every day about noon when Mary Sandlin and Altie Smith would call one another up to gossip. Now the two old sisters lived within shouting distance of one another, but they'd still tie up the line every day for hours. Sometimes you'd have to ask them to get off so you could make a call, and they'd snub up and get mad. When they did that, Mom would say, well, Altie and Mary acts just like they strung the lines on the poles themselves. Now, it was always easy to tell when Mary Sandlin was listening in. She made a scratchy whistling sound when she breathed out through her nose. Daddy said it made that noise because it was broke from getting stuck in everybody else's business. <laughs> Sometimes she'd sneeze and try to muffle it, but still yet, it just ended up sounding like a trumpet. And her sister Alty was a little better, but still yet, you could always hear a little chihuahua dog muffin yipping in the background. Now, our bunch is careful about what we said, because somebody was always listening in. You could tell by the little click the phone made when they picked the receiver up, or when they hung it up, bored with what you were saying. Now, I have to admit, Mommy was a pro at listening in, and we got a kick out of watching her. She'd look around the house to see if any of us was watching. Then she'd slip down the hall like we didn't know what she was doing. Same old routine every time. The little wooden bench was rickety, so she'd ease down on it so as not to make it squeak, but it always did. Then she'd lay her hand on the phone receiver for a few seconds and lift it off the cradle real gentle, like she's a picking eggs out of a hen's nest. We could see her in the shadows a little way up the hall, and it weren't no secret, but she always acted like it was. Now, sometimes me and my sister would get noisy, and she'd swat at us with her hand to make us be quiet. And if we was mad at her over something, we'd run up down the hall yelling and screaming to give her away. That's when she'd put the phone back down on the hook real quick and go outside and cut a switch off of the forsythy bush. Well, that old party line stayed with us way up into the 1970s, long after everybody else in the county got their phone line. But we just carried on like always with our old black phones and access to everybody's business. But now the party line weren't all bad. When news got out that a neighbor was sick or in some kind of trouble, somebody would usually show up with whatever they needed. Like that time in 63 when we lost our backer crop to the flood. I reckon everybody knowed it, on the creek knowed it when Luther Deaton from the bank called up that fall wanting paid, and we never had no money. Two days later, a fruit jar with $47.16 showed up on the back porch. That was the only time in my life I ever see Daddy with tears in his eyes. And nobody never took claim for it nor mentioned again, but it sure saved our hides. Well, along about 1973, I married Leslie Strong, and we moved over on Wick. 
We lived there in a trailer for about two years till Daddy passed in 75. After that, we moved back into the old home place to be with Mommy. By then, she'd listen, been listening for so many years that sometimes she'd take liberties, and it was plain to see that her skills was starting to fade. Like one night, Veda Deaton's son took the croup real bad, and Veda was talking to somebody on the phone about it. Well, Mommy forgot herself, I reckon, and she just joined right in the conversation. <laughs> she told him to put vinegar on a brown paper bag and wrap it around that boy's neck before he went to bed that night. I heard her say, you're welcome, right before she hung up, so I reckon they thanked her. <laughs> well, progress finally came to Freeman's Fork, and in the summer of 1980, we all got our private lines. The men from the phone company worked every day for a week installing them little boxes on our houses and putting equipment on telephone poles. By Friday week, the phone men had that little junction box down off the pole and were gone. And so was the party line. Well, the first week or two after that, Mommy still went through her listening in routine. She'd pick up the phone around noon because that's what she'd done every day for more than 20 years. But now, all she could hear was the cold buzz of a dial tone. She never said much about it, but I could tell she didn't like this new arrangement. After we had those separate lines, I come home from work early one day, and I found her sitting in the dark up the hallway on that little bench. Bless her heart, I reckon she's sort of embarrassed when she realized I'd seen her, and she just kind of wandered back on up the hallway to her bedroom. But now as for me, I didn't mind the change. I didn't need to know that Alty's left foot was bigger than the right. And if Brenda Sue Gabbard wanted to take up with that married fella from over on Cane Creek, then she could have at it. I weren't going to miss that Harold boy trying to court Letch Turner's daughter over on Sebastian's branch, neither. After they got through calling each other Sweetie Pie and Honey Bun, they ran out of things to say pretty quick. So they mostly just sat there and breathed back and forth at one another. <laughs> no, sir, I weren't going to miss that at all. But now the old folks, they missed it. It had been a big part of their lives here on Freeman's Fork for an awful long time. Well, Mommy seemed to get over the party line being gone, and eventually she moved on to other things. She took to doing crossword puzzles and playing solitaire, but mostly she started watching the days of our lives like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. She'd say as her story ended each day, repeating the, the show's opening theme. But I knew she missed listening in. Well, by and by, Mommy's memory began to slip, and we could see old age was setting in. It was just little things at first, like what channel our story came on, or if Thursday was the day we drove over to Boonville to the shopwise to grocery shop. But it got worse over time, and I'd find her standing in the hallway at night, not knowing where she was, or sometimes who I was. And that's when the strange things started to happen. One night, we'd not been in bed 30 minutes, when that old black phone up the hall gave off a little half ring like it used to in the party line days. Well, we never thought much about it. Just figured somebody called and hung up real quick. Practical jokes was pretty big then, and somebody that very day had called and told us that our cow was in their garden. 
Well, when we told them we didn't have no cow, they just laughed and said, well, we ain't got no garden. <laughs> and I didn't get that one, but they thought it was pretty funny. Well, in a few minutes, the phone gave off another little half ring, and we heard Mommy coming down the hallway. We could tell she stopped at the phone because we heard her sit down on that squeaky old bench. I stuck my head out the door, and there she sat, just like she used to, with her hand over the mouthpiece like, piece, like she was listening in. I watched her for a few minutes, and before long, she hung up and wandered back up the hall. I went on to bed and never thought no more about it. Well, the next morning we was all sitting at the breakfast table eating biscuits and gravy, and that's when Mommy mentioned that Mary Sandlin had died last night. Well, we hadn't heard nothing about that. She's up in her 80s, and we knew she'd been in the hospital over to Hazard, but nobody had, been, had called or been by to say a thing. Well, Mommy, I don't reckon, I said after she finished telling us. Well, that's what Alty was saying on the phone last night, she said. So that sort, of, that sort of took me by surprise. So I looked at her and I said, well, Mommy, Alty's been dead almost six years. Surely she weren't on the phone last night. Mommy kind of leaned her head down and fiddled with the napkin in her lap. Before long, she got up and wandered into the living room with her coffee and sat down to start a puzzle. She couldn't really work them anymore or play solitaire, but she still went about it like she always had. Well, about an hour later, the phone rang, and it was Eileen Thompson from up the creek. She's calling to tell us that Mary Sandlin had died last night along about 11 o'clock. I asked her if she's sure, and she said it was so. I never mentioned what Mom had said, and we visited on the phone a few more minutes there. When we hung up, I went back into the living room where Mommy was sitting and told her the news. She just looked up at me and never said no more about it. Well, a few days went by, and they buried Mary Sandlin. We went to her funeral around at the church, but we didn't go on to the graveyard afterwards because Mommy didn't feel up to it. Sometime that night, away after we'd gone to bed, the phone gave off another one of those little short half rings. It woke me up, and I thought I heard Mommy walk down the hall and sit down on that little bench. I picked up the receiver on the phone next to our bed, but there's a dial tone on it. So I hung it back up and walked out in the hall to see about Mommy. I barely caught the white tail of her gown as she turned the corner going back up to her room. The old black phone was off the hook just laying there on the little bench. Well, I couldn't help wondering what was going on. So I picked up the receiver and put it to my ear. Sure as a world, there was two old women talking on the other end of it. Well, I dropped that phone like it was a snake and I ran back to bed. The hair on my neck and arms was a standing up straight. Leslie thought I was crazy when I told her what had happened, but she's too afraid to go out there and, and hang that phone up, so she must have believed me. <laughs> Pretty soon it started making that beep, 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 beep noise one it makes if you don't put it back on the cradle. So we figured whoever was on it was gone. Well, that next day, Mommy never got out of bed at all. And when I went back to check on her, she seemed really confused, and all she could say was, like sand through the hourglass, 
So are the days of our lives. Things is getting pretty scary around the house. That old black phone up the hall give off that little short half ring all through the day. And mommy was back up in her room <clears throat> talking to somebody that weren't there. At least if they were, we couldn't see them. Well, along about 3 o'clock, that old black phone started giving off full rings, just like somebody was calling us. I walked over to the one on the kitchen wall, and even though it, it weren't ringing, I answered it. They weren't nobody there, just a dial tone. But that old black phone, it just kept right on ringing. Well, it weren't going to stop. So I eased up the hall and sat down on that old phone bench. When I put the receiver to my ear, it sounded like there's more than a dozen people on the line, all talking at once. Some of the voices sounded familiar, but I couldn't really place them. I sat there listening for a minute, but before long, a loud static set in. Then all of a sudden, that old black phone just went dead. Well, I hung it back up on its cradle and stood up from that old phone bench. And when I did, it gave off that same little old squeak, <clears throat> like when Mommy was sitting on it. I walked back up the hall and peeked in her room from the door. The curtains is drawn shut, and the room was dark and quiet. Mommy's laying there all still and peaceful-like, and I knew right then she's gone. Well, it's been 15 years since Mommy passed. We've got one of those new cell phones that everybody likes to carry around with them now. But that old black phone, it's still up the hallway on that rickety old bench. We just never had the heart to take it down. Funny thing, though, it ain't never rung once since the day Mommy died. Oh, it's still hooked to the wall, and a phone man looked at it and said he couldn't find no short or nothing. But it's dead as a doornail. I guess the sand done passed through the hourglass on it, just like it did on Mommy, and like it did on that old party line, too. I made that one into a play. Two years ago, I wrote four. A fellow called me up, a friend of mine called me up, and said, why don't you write four plays out of that ghost story book? And so I, I turned that one into one, and it worked out real well. Uh, I took that same uh, little phone bench that, that my grandmother had sat on, and we had it in the play, and uh, it was just neat, really, to see that come all, all come back to life. And, of course, you know, none of that happened, but still, uh, so much of it did happen. And probably, you know, probably 90% of that story is real. You know, it's just straight out of our history and our way of life. And uh, when I started writing this book, I thought, well, I've got a pretty good book here. So I, I, I got all cocky, and I, took, I went over to the University Press of Kentucky, and I gave them six or seven of my stories, and I, I thought, well, I've just got a home run here. And a month or two went by, and I never heard a word from them. So I called them up, and, and they finally said, well, Mr. Deaton, we don't, we don't print folklore. I thought, folklore? You know, like I said, probably 80% of that really happened. And you just, I just added a ghost story to it. So I got all bent out of shape, and I went home, and I wrote one just for the University Press of Kentucky <laughs> that was about a, a friend of mine told me um, 
a story about something, an old gal called the Buffalo Witch. And so I just wrote a humdinger about her. I just, you know, just blew it all out of proportion. And, and I thought, well, now that's folklore. That'll, that'll be folklore. But I ended up writing 16 more or eight more stories after that. Just decided to publish it on my own. <clears throat> I've sold 3,000 copies of it. Uh, a publisher told me one time that 2% of all books sell 2,000 copies or more. So this little fella right here, I don't know, that's in the two, in the one and a half percent at least, isn't it? So it's somewhere up there. Uh, but it was a lot of fun to write. When I would, when I would write this stuff, uh, it was almost like I got to be with my family. Uh, I left Breathitt County 35 years ago, but it was like I got to be home just all day and when I got finished I felt like I'd been there and I would try to I would try to talk like my my grandmother like I remember my grandmother talking and my uncle Plez and people in that neighborhood and so it really was just very satisfying uh, uh, to finish this book so there was another I'll tell you another little odd thing that happened to my grandmother she lived uh, my, my grandfather died in, in 62, the year before I was born, so I never knew him. So my grandmother lived right there in that house. We lived with her for seven years, but for the rest of the time, she, she died in, um, in, in 98, 99. She died in 99, so she lived there for 30-some years right by herself. And it was a big old house, and there wasn't another neighbor for a half a mile at least. And I went over one time, I was about 18, I got over and she was acting odd. And she finally got around telling me, we were sitting on the front porch and she said that last night, somewhere way up in the night, she, a noise woke her up. And she said she could hear something uh, way over on the hill. We got three hills. There's a big one in front of the house, two on each side. And she said that front hill she could, see, she could hear something walking real heavy, and it was making a, a, just a, she tried to make the sound, and it was kind of like a She was afraid to make, she didn't even want to make the sound. It had bothered her so bad. And she said she had heard it, she could hear it walking around the ridge uh, probably for half a mile until it got far away, and she could still hear it way off. Uh, and she, we never figured out what that was, but it was something pretty big because she could, you know, she could hear its foot, footfalls. And you know, right at this point, right now, I could yell again, and every one of you all would jump out of your seats again. <laughs> uh, but I spared you right there. But she never could figure that one out. Uh, but she was a brave, brave lady. One night I was, I went back up there, and I was spending the night with her. And two fellows went up the holler on a four-wheeler. It was about 11 o'clock at night. And I thought, well, you know, they don't need to be doing that. So I went out there and waited on them. And about one, they came back out of the hill. And I stopped them. And I was talking to them. And they were right there, right at the end of, uh, of the driveway, about, oh, 30 feet from her garage door. And I just told them, you know, look here, boys, you don't need to be coming up in here. My grandma, you scare my grandma. She doesn't know what's going on. And they were just like, oh, yeah, that's fine. We won't, we won't be back. And I, yeah, that's right, you won't be back. 
And I turned around, and there she stood in the doorway with a pistol in her hand. <laughs> she was backing me up the whole time. And they hadn't been looking at me, but they had seen my grandmother with her pistol in her hand. But she was a sweetheart. And uh, the next story I'm going to read you, it's about the boy in the barn. And it was the very first, somebody's getting into it over there. <laughs> I better go check on that youngin. This is probably the most mountain story that I wrote. Uh, this one's got our about our graveyards. Uh, it's about our traditions. Um, you know, just it's it's as it's as much about our way of life probably as any any story in this book. And I, I just you know that little boy, nobody remembers where he's buried. He's about ten when he died, but nobody knows where he is or who he was. So uh, I just felt like that little feller needed you know something written about him, and it made a pretty good little story too. When they built that old barn down by the creek, they never paid no mind to safety. No, sir, they built it to house tobacco, and from the looks of it, they used every pole they could find, even some that weren't big enough. But I reckon youngins have climbed all over it for close to 100 years. I know I did. Now, it still looks about like it always did, except for that little corn crib up against the back wall. It weren't always there. Pap said his granddaddy built it to cover over that spot where that boy fell out and got killed. That's where I'd always hide when little granny come looking for me with her switch in her hand. Pap said that boy that fell out was way up in the top, out on a long, thin rail that swagged down in the middle. I reckon I stood in that same place a hundred times before I turned ten. They said he liked to climb up there and look out, over, out the barn window. That boy of Mort's, that is. Leastways, that's what Pap and them called him. Now, I never knowed who Mort was, but I reckon he lived up the holler some time ago. There's a, bit, a little black and white picture hanging up in the back hallway of our house. It's of that boy Mort and Granny when she was a little girl. And he don't show it, but he had hair redder than a rooster's comb. He's a scrawny little feller, and they said he's about 10 when he fell, but he never looked no more than seven to me. Now, Mommy and Pap never cared if I played out in the barn, but little Granny was different. She lived there with us, and she threatened me with a whooping every time I went about that place. But I didn't usually pay her no mind, because that old barn and me was friends. It was worth a licking to climb up in it, and I'd been all the way to the top. Besides, I'd stepped on a sliver of glass and split my foot wide open playing in the burn pile in the creek last summer, so I kind of figured it was safer up in that barn. Now, even though I'm a grown man, I still get a little shiver whenever I walk past that old barn, especially at night. And I don't really know why, because that boy Mortz weren't mean, and he just scared me that one time. Shoot, I reckon I owe him big, because he saved my hide from falling out of the top of that barn, grabbed me by the arm and held me until I caught a hold of a pole. I was out on the same rail where he fell and died, too. 
I was a little bitty fella, about seven, the first time I ever laid eyes on him. We was both out in the barn, and it was cold that day, and he weren't wearing no shirt. Matter of fact, he never had a shirt on, even in the dead of winter. Didn't wear no shoes, neither. Said it helped him walk on the poles better. And them overalls he wore was the same ones he had on in that black and white picture. I knowed from the tear on the leg. One day, me and that boy Mortz was playing up in the barn, and I tried my best to get him to come to the house. But he said he couldn't. Said he had to stay out there in that old barn. Now that never made no sense to me, but I guess I was just too young to figure it out. Well, that night I asked little granny why that boy Mort stayed out there in the barn, and she took a fit and whooped me. Told me not to never name that again. She snatched up the little coffee can that she spit her backer juice in and stomped off to her room for the rest of the night. She's odd like that. I seen her every now and then of the evening out there by that old barn, walking around like she's a holding something in a pet in its head. And I caught her up there another time and she's a singing happy birthday to somebody. I figured she's about half crazy and I always give her a wide path when she walked past me. Upon <laughs> my honor, I'll cut me a switch, she'd say after I'd steal me a plug of her tobacco or if I forgot to lower the milk bottles back down in the well to keep them cool. And by God, she meant it. Well, little granny was getting up mighty old, and she died the winter before I turned 10. Pap found her out there in that old barn one morning, sitting in a little cane bottom chair. Her backer juice can was by her foot, and it looked like she'd just gone to sleep and froze. Well, a few days later, we had her funeral down at the church, and after it was over, they brought her back home and set her coffin up on the kitchen table against the front wall of our living room. Now, I'd seen that done once before down at Roscoe Sebastian's place when old Aunt Pearlie died. Roscoe's boy Jeff hid behind a washstand in the kitchen and cried till they moved her out on the porch for the night. So there was little Granny, laid out in her favorite long dress and her hair pinned up to the back of her head in that same little tight bun. The women down the creek brought some black lace and draped it around that coffin made it look like she was laying there in the middle of a big black spider web. I heard Mom and them women say they aimed to sit up with little Granny all night. And Pap and the men folk was out in the front yard standing around a fire they'd built in an old rusty barrel. They was out there whittling and telling big tales, and I heard, and I heard them laughing every now and then, and I was just aching to be out there with them. But Pap sent me on to bed. Well, it couldn't have been more than two in the morning when I woke up because something had took the covers off my feet and they was cold. I raised up to see what was going on and that's when I seed that boy of Mort's a hunkered down on the floor beside my bed. He's a looking up at me with a big wide grin on his face and it scared me good too. He weren't saying nothing, just put his finger up to his mouth like he wanted me to stay quiet. Well, after a minute or so, he raised up real slow, and he walked into the room, that next room where them women was all sitting and talking, and they acted like they never even seen him. Well, he went right past him up to that open casket where little granny was laying, and just stood there and looked in at her. 
Well, I was way too scared to do that. I hadn't even gone into the room that night. I just peeked in at her every now and then from the hallway. Well, the next thing I know, that boy Mort took his hand and he reached down in that casket and he petted little granny on the face just as gentle as me and you would have petted a baby kitten. Well, when he done that, I seen something start to move around in that box. And the next thing I knowed, little granny raised up out of that coffin looking just like she did in that black and white picture hanging down the hallway. Mom and them women still never even batted an eye when he helped her down to the floor. Well, little granny and that boy Mort stood there and looked at each other for a minute. And then they turned and walked toward the door while I was standing. Granny made a pretty little girl and she reached out and patted me on the arm as they walked past. Her little hand felt soft and warm and she smiled at me as they went out the door. I followed them outside a little ways and watched them from the porch. They walked right past Pap and them men and headed down that little dirt path that led to the barn. Now I know it weren't no dream because about that time Pap hollered up and said, Junior, shut that door and get back to bed. And that was one time I listened to him. <laughs> well, when daybreak come, Pap and five great big neighbor men put little granny's casket up on their shoulders and carried her, up outside, carried her outside. She'd picked a little spot up on the hill in a clearing that looked out, overlooked the holler. We had to walk right by that old barn on the way, but I never even shot a glance at it as we, as we passed. Well, I reckon I've walked past that old barn a thousand times since that day. I moved up the holler into a little trailer and I walked down about every evening to check on Mommy and Pap. One night while I was down at the house, I just up and asked Pap about Granny and that boy of Mort's. I told him what I'd seen that night and he just kind of sat there quiet for a spell, looking down at a piece of cedar he's carving on. I reckon he might have seen him too when he was a boy. Well, after a few minutes, he glanced up at me, told me something I'd not heard. He said that boy Mortz and little granny was playmates when they was young. And one day she'd got up in that barn to look out the window and got into a wasp nest. She was getting stung and about to fall, but that boy Mortz saved her. He went back up and knocked down that wasper's nest but fell off that little, tin, that little thin tear rail of doing it in the day he is supposed to turn 10 years old too. Pap said he figured little granny just never got over it. <clears throat> he gave me that black and white picture of her and that boy Mortz right before he died and I hung it up in the hallway of my trailer. Well, I got a boy now and I reckon he slips off the up, up that holler and plays in that old barn just like I used to. I hear him in there carrying on and a talking like there's somebody else up in there with him. Now his mommy gets all over him for doing it. And she's always on me to switch him over it. But I ain't too worried. I know that boy of Mortz will catch him. <laughs> that was another, I forgot to tell you this. And I don't know if I've seen a ghost or not. I've had, uh, I've had some strange things happen. One of the strangest, 
and I forget, I forget this happened, but when I was about 13, I would ride the bus home from, from uh, Breathitt High School, and there was this little boy on there, and he was maybe seven or eight years old, and I can't remember what happened, but he got killed. And a few nights after he got killed, I woke up one night, and the cover was off my feet, and he was at the foot of my bed touching my feet. And it absolutely scared me to death. And I can't, I don't know if it was a dream. I had had to have just been a dream. But when I, I either woke up or I was dreaming one, he was at the foot of that bed. And I, you know, and that's just so weird. Why was he touching my feet? But he had, un, you know, my, my feet were uncovered. And I thought him doing that. And so I wrote that. I thought that was a neat part of how he would wake me up in the house that night. So that actually did happen. And another time, probably six or seven years ago, I was, I was back in Breathitt County, and I was riding up to spend the night with my cousin at his house, and he mentioned that one of our classmates had died. Real pretty girl had gotten killed in a car wreck, probably six or seven years earlier than that, and I hadn't even heard that. And so that night I went to bed, and Somewhere through the night, I woke up and I was sitting in a chair across the room from the bed and she was standing in the doorway in a long white nightgown. And I mean, again, just scared the bejesus out of me and I don't know, I woke up, I was awake because I remember getting up and going back to the bed, but that was just a really super strange and, and uh, a weird occurrence. And so that's a couple of times that I've, you know, had odd things happen to me. Another time, and this was Emmy, my daughter, my youngest daughter, Emmy, was about five, maybe. And for some reason, she and I went back to, to Buckhorn alone. Leslie and, and Sophie didn't go. And we went to spend the night with my aunt. My, my aunt lives there in that house now. And so... So Emmy just for some reason, she was a big chicken. For some reason, she wanted to stay in Memo's old room. She wanted to sleep in there by herself. And so I went on up the hallway to the purple room and uh, slept up there. Well, about somewhere through the night, I woke up and I looked down and she was standing in, at the foot of my bed looking out the window, just standing there. You know, that'll give you, uh, that'll give you a start just there. And so I got her and got her in the bed with me. And probably an hour later, I woke up again and I just saw her, and this is where I got my grandmother, the tail of my grandmother's dress. Uh, I just barely caught the end of Emmy's gown. She was down on the floor crawling back to that bedroom. And I got, it scared me. I got up and I followed her and she crawled on the floor the entire way back to that, and crawled into that bed and went back to sleep. And so I could, that was just weird as it could be. It was just creepy. And you know, I, I could not figure out exactly what happened. She didn't remember doing it. Uh, so, you know, I, if, I may be the only ghost story book writer that has never seen a ghost, but maybe I have too, I don't know. It's just always been at night, you know, when I was in the bed and asleep so 
you know, certainly I am open to it. If a ghost wants to present itself to me, especially my grandma Sophie or anybody, that tickle me to death. Uh, but, you know, I just, I don't know. Uh, but probably the reason I wrote these, these stories is I wanted to preserve a lot of our culture. People, when they write about Eastern Kentucky, a lot of times it's just bad stuff. And I wanted to preserve the everyday life, you know, our everyday, our habits and our, our ways of doing things and the way we talked. Uh, and the Kentucky University Press of Kentucky didn't like dialect either. They didn't want me to use dialect in it. And I went back and I rewrote one of them and it just, you know, in King's E, it fell flat as a pancake. And so, you know, I kept the dialogue, the dialect, and I just wanted people to, to get a good idea without making fun of anybody back there, you know, what we're like. Uh, and we're, we're, you know, Eastern Kentucky folks are different. We're different probably than the rest of the state. Have any of you all been to Eastern Kentucky much? So just, I saw two hands, that's it. You know, it's, when we were, when we lived there, in the early 70s, when we would drive here, it would take six and a half hours. You know, just, it was like forever just trying to get here. And so you just don't go from one end of this state to the other unless you've got business, really. And, you know, it'd be hard for you all to even imagine what we're like and what our way of life is like. And it's hard for us to imagine that you can see a mile and a half across a field. <laughs> you know, I grew up seeing Two or three hundred yards was about as far as we could see because there'd be another mountain. Uh, and so the first time I went to the ocean, I was just floored. You know, we could see for 20 miles out through there. Uh, but it's a it is a very different way of living and a way of life. What, what time is it? Anybody got the time? Uh oh, I was told to wrap it up by 7:30 uh, so they could get all your chairs out of the way. Well, I'm going to tell you all the big toe. Since I've laid the foundation for it, uh, you need to go out of here here in a good mountain story. So, and I'm gonna scare my little second cousin once removed back there. Not you, you need to look back, it's you. <laughs> yes. I need to move around when I tell this one. It's an action story. <clears throat> well, one time, and Leslie says that's how I start every one of my stories, is well, one time. <laughs> yeah, I started off telling, really what got me to write my book was telling ghost stories to Leslie's kindergarten class. And I'd go in and they'd want to hear different, they'd get tired of the big toe. So I started making up different stories and that's how I came across the idea to make my book. So, well, anyway, the big toe. Oh, one time, there's this old man, and he lived way back up this holler, all by himself. And every year, he built, he grew the finest garden anybody ever saw. One morning, he woke up. And he decided he had to have him a big old kettle of, of uh, vegetable soup that day. So he got his burlap sack, and he got his tater fork, and he went out into his garden. Well, he broke him off some corn and put it in that bag, and he pulled him some big old juicy tomatoes, got him some green beans, and uh, went over and 
got ready to dig him some taters. Well, he got that tater fork and he jobbed it down the ground and he popped it up and there was two of the finest big potatoes you ever saw in your life on it. So he pulls them off, puts them in that bag. Well, he jobs it down the ground again and pops it up. And uh, sure enough, great big tater over here. And something over here looks like a toe for the world. It just looks like a big toe. Well, he looks at it and he pulls it off and just throws it in his bag and goes on. So eventually he gets him enough and he goes in the house and he shucks his corn and silks it and cuts it off the cob and breaks his beans up and chops his tomatoes and gets those potatoes. Well, he chops them all up and gets that toe. And it's a big one. So he looks at it and thinks, well, you know, it's bad luck to eat a tater that looks like something. But just last week, he'd eat one that looked like a horned owl, and it didn't, nothing happened, so he thought, all right. So he chopped that toe up and threw it in his kettle, and lights him a big old fire, goes about the business of his day. Well, a few hours later, he comes back, and oh, it's smelling good in there. So he dips him out a big old boiling hot bowl of that soup, and he's going to the window to set it down, but it smells so good, he takes a bite of it, and oh, he just gobbles that, that red hot soup down. Well, he goes back and gets him another bowl, and he gobbles it down. Pretty soon, he eats that entire kettle of soup. Well, he's wore out. You know, he just leans back. and whew. Well, eventually, he gets up, and he walks over to the fireplace. <clears throat> and he gets him up, gets him his pipe down, off the mantelpiece and he strikes him a match and lights that pipe and he sits back in his chair starts puffing away he's just rocking back and forth and he just about goes to sleep but while he's asleep something says Where's my big toe? And he kind of wakes up. Well, he looks around. He don't see nothing. So he strikes him another match. He lights that pipe up. He starts puffing that pipe. He's just about to go to sleep. And this time, something a little louder says, Where's my big toe? Well, he gets up. He heard it this time. He gets up and he looks all around that house. And he looks underneath the bed. He looks in his closet. Can't find a thing. So he strikes him another match and he walks over and he's standing right by the fireplace. And he's puffing on that pipe. This time, something really loud says, Where's my big toe? Well, he knows exactly where it's coming from this time. So he leans over, and he looks up that chimney, and sure enough, standing up there on the top of that chimney is a big old hairy monster, and he's a missing a toe. Well, he looks 
the bed. And he says to it, he says, well, what you got them big eyes for? says to smell you with. Well, he looks back up and says, well, what's that big tail for? And it looks down at him and it says, to sweep your grave. He looks back up and says, well, what's them big teeth for? And he looks down at him and says, chomp your bones! <laughs> and usually a kid will just freak out. Thank you all for coming tonight. I appreciate it. I've got some books here if anybody's interested, and uh, I hope you learned just a little bit about the mountains tonight.